Welcome back to another episode of Prosperity Ag Out Loud with Michelle Baker. On this episode, I am very excited to bring to you an interview with Chuck Beresich. Chuck is an owner of Haggerty Creek Limited, and I first wanted to have Chuck for an interview to discuss his work with the Dot Robot fertilizer spreader that he um, was working with this season. However, this interview evolved into so much more than that, and there's really something in this for everyone from discussing getting started in farming while holding an off-farm position, um, you know, working with family members and different family dynamics, um, taking risks and having some huge setbacks and how to overcome those. So really excited for all of you to hear this, and I hope you enjoy it. So let's get started talking about you and how you got involved in agriculture. I believe that you did grow up on a farm, so why don't you start off just telling us um, how you got interested in the business? So I grew up on a on a mixed um, I grew up on a mixed beef and cash crop farm. The beef cattle were more when we were very when I was younger. You know, probably in my you know early teens is when my parents got out of the cattle cattle business and started cash cropping full time and I knew at that age that I liked I liked farming I liked being involved in farming I did not really enjoy the livestock side it wasn't it wasn't that I, I hated it but it wasn't my thing mm -hmm. um, and but you know we liked you know all of us used to ride around the tractors from a very young age and, and we liked doing that kind of work um, you know, running the machinery and, and this this kind of stuff. So we, it's kind of one of these things that we always knew we would be involved in farming somehow. Uh, it was actually my mother that pushed us, my brother and I mostly, you know, she really encouraged us. Like as soon as we were 18 years old, she said, you know, you need to you know, rent a farm, buy a farm, find a way to get one. You need to start young. She said, don't wait until you're too old you know she said you don't want to wait until you're 30 or 40 years old and then start you want to start now and so she actually you know encouraged us and we had some money uh, you know working in tobacco and, and doing things uh we actually my brother and i we bought our first farm when i was 18 years old good for you every farm we bought since then including that one all of the neighbors said we paid way too much money <laughs> That never changes. So that that first farm, I remember, um, I think it was a thousand dollars an acre, and we thought, how are we ever going to pay for this? The interest rate, we thought we had a great deal. That it was, I think it was eight and a quarter percent interest, and we just thought that was the, and that wasn't that long ago. I think that was 1994 ish, around right around that time frame. Yeah, that's that incredible. Happened. Yeah, and so. So that's kind of how we started, and so we started with that, that 50 acres, and then over time, my brother and I, we bought, you know, a, you know, a few farms here and there, you know, as they came up, and I worked for, I worked, as soon as I was done uh, high school, uh, I worked, I went to university, I went to Guelph, graduated in 96 with a, with a VCOM, and as soon as I was done university, I went to work for Farm Credit, okay. and I grew up in the in the family like I grew up knowing that you had to work out as well if you were going to cash crop and, and start farming. So like my my grandfather when he came to the country, to Canada 
And he worked in the mines in Northern Ontario in the wintertime and farmed in the summertime. My father worked in a, uh, in a tube bending plant as well as in tobacco and other stuff. So he had an off-farm job for most of you know, his younger life and, uh, and so did my uncle. So we, we kind of grew up used to that. You know, you, you can't expect to just be able to just grow crops and, and make a living. You have to supplement that income somehow. So we were used to that. So I worked at Farm Credit full time and I did that for about 13 years. And then my brother, he worked as a uh, uh, mechanic at John, for John Deere for Paul Linsky's. Okay. So, so we both worked out and then we farmed and then we were the, we were the, the ultimate weekend warrior. Yeah, um, <laughs> nothing wrong with that. No, and then we built some relationships up. You know, we had some neighbors that when we were younger, we helped them out, you know, so we would, you know, they would ask us to, you know, work some ground or cut the grass or do this kind of stuff. And so when one of those neighbors, like things really took off about 2001, when the one neighbor that we, you know, helped out over over the years, he'd come to us and said, no, I think I want to retire and do you want to take over? So we bought his home farm, which is where I live now. And then we took over his rented ground, you know, so that kind of, that was like our first kind of made us more, you know, real time, you know, entities, I guess is yeah. that was. Yeah. Then, yeah, that would have been a big change at that point for you. Yeah, and then when my brother, um, when my brother and I each got married, um, we decided we wanted to try to avoid any kind of like family issues, you know, because it's it's really tough when you're working with somebody else to try to keep everybody happy. Uh, yes. <laughs> so what we did, we made a decision, you know, basically was, I got married first and then as soon as my brother got married, we, we sat down and we said, okay, Who's is whose and what's and what's what kind of thing. So we decided to separate all of our farms so that I had my farms and my brother had his farms, but we still share equipment and we still farm together. But the the entities are our own. And we made that decision very consciously so that if I wanted to grow all soybeans, I could. And if he wanted to grow all corn, he could, or whatever. There wasn't any of this, well, you decided to grow this and that was a bad crop or whatever. And right. the other you can thing, still spend family uh, family dinners together on holidays is what yes, you're saying. Exactly. <laughs> the other thing that it, it avoided was, you know, if my brother wanted to contract all of his corn ahead of time, he could. And if I wanted to hedge my crop and not sell it, it was my own decision. And whereas when you're trying to do that together, it, it really, you can have one family member who makes those decisions and when, when things go well the families get along great but i you know i, I sort of had that experience I've, I've seen it where when the money is tight that's when the families start to break down a little bit and, and we really wanted to make sure that didn't happen and so that that's was, interesting i didn't uh, you know i didn't know we were going to go there but that's a it's always really interesting to see how other farms have gone about that because you know there's so many different ways but it's um it's always interesting to hear how different farms are doing that and what's worked successfully for yeah, them. Yeah and I saw some of that when I was at Farm Credit. You know you see you would see what people did well and you see what where things went really poorly. And you know and, mm -hmm. and that was something that that was important to us. And then I guess over time you know we picked up some more land and 
and nothing has really changed. I think uh, for the last little bit, we, you know, we expand when we think we can. Uh, my my father, he has pretty much retired now. He's um, in his mid seventies, and so he's you know he helps out when he can, and so he's stepped back quite a bit. Um, and and to be honest with you, I think the way farming, the cash cropping especially, has changed even in, in the twenty years that like when we started you know when we started you know we had you know 250 bushel grain wagons and, and we thought we were really doing something and now we have semi trucks you know you, you, the wagons are kind of a joke almost right so you're you, it's things have changed so much dad talks about how yeah. when uh when he was younger like his father had 150 acres and they had, you know, they had cattle and they had other, you know, all these things. And he said, if they worked up, and this could be a tall tale. So just if I tell this <laughs> wrong, but he, what he said was that, you know, when the three of him and his two brothers, you know, if they worked up and planted 10 acres in a day with their 33 masses and whatever, that was a good day. They, they felt really good about it. Mm -hmm. and out of the 150 acres that they had, my brother and I, like if we don't plant 150 acres in one day, we're a little bit disappointed. And some days, if we have both planters going, we'll be 300, 350 acres. So things have changed a lot. And so I think that's why my dad doesn't, he doesn't get quite as upset about stepping back and watching, because he knows that the work is done. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I'm sure, you know, as you get older, it is, it does get to be harder to keep up with everything because I think the pace, things are changing at a faster pace than they have been before. I'm sure every generation has felt that way, but I'm sure you see it a lot on the technology side of things for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. So tell me how Hegarty Creek, the portion of it, came about because um is that that was basically like a joint venture between yourself and your brother then um yes. back in okay so tell us how that came about and kind of how you guys worked to make that decision so we knew so we were both working out and we knew that we had to you know supplement our income somehow and the job that i had farm credit was very flexible to me so if i needed to come and go they would let me come and go and um, so I was able to do, you know, quite a bit of the farm work and my brother, he was like, like a service, like on the road. And so he was on call. So if it was a Sunday at three in the afternoon in February and the snowplow tractor broke and starting it off, he went sorry. Mm -hmm. And so that always annoyed him that, that when we were wanting to be farming, that's when the John Deere dealership was the busiest. Yes. And so he was looking for a change. We knew we wanted to do a business of some kind. And so we were like, you know, what kind of business can we do? Um, it just so happened that in our area, um, one of the other retailers, and I won't name them so it doesn't sound bad. I'm not gonna pick on anybody. But one of the re other retailers in the area, they had closed two of their locations. So they had closed one in Bothell and then they were talking about they're going to close. They announced they're going to close another one in Newbury, which is close to us. And so we were sitting here thinking, you know, here we are trying to get going in farming. We need a service provider close to us. Like, what are we going to do? Um, and so 
we got looking and talking about you know where you know, where can we go and what's close. We we kind of discovered we were in a bit of a like an underserved. We would be in an underserviced area, and we thought, why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we try to service this business to some degree? So we researched, you know, putting up some grain bins and a corn dryer and this kind of stuff, and we quickly quickly realized that there's no way we could do it on our own. Like we couldn't. Um, either financially or how would people even trust us that, that they could bring us our grain and we would even pay them back. So we approached, um, I was at a meeting and I just happened to be sitting beside the manager of Agris Co-op at that time and I mentioned to him what my idea was that, you know, we're in this underserviced area, competitors closing, you know, we would like to deal with that co-op, for example, but they're too far away. Um, and would they be open to a to a joint venture of some kind? And to my surprise, even to this day, he said, "Yeah, we would be." And so we kind of sat down and, and uh, penciled it out. And, and uh, he was like uh, Jim was is kind of a, a bit of a visionary guy. Like he's one of like one of these good people to kind of know. And so he said, "Don't just build some bins." He said, "You should do agronomy too. You should." you know, sell crop inputs and fertilize. And that scared us a little bit. We were like, ah, oh, this is, <laughs> now we're really getting beyond what we were used to. We had thought, you know, we're gonna put up like two little bins and a corn dryer and whatever. And he said, no, no, do it all. So we built, we, that's how it started. And the first year that we opened was 2001. So if I, if you remember back when I told you before, that was the year we took over that farm. Yes, <laughs> that was a big year. Yes, we, we basically tripled our, our farming operation, so that was a bit, bit of a stretch. Now we're starting this business. In 2001, that was the year of the drought in the aphids. So our, Perfect. So that was the year that we had, I think we had 80 bushel corn, sorry, 100 bushel corn, and we had 25 bushel soybeans that year. So we didn't even crop wow. in to fill our new elevator. We built this new elevator, we couldn't even fill it. And so anyways, so that was tough. And then 2002 came around and we were kind of like, it can't be any worse than 2001. We had 80 bushel corn and 17 bushel soybeans in our second year. No. But we had more customers that year. So at least we were able to fill the elevator that year. And, and then, you know, kind of from that point on, things sort of continued on. You know, we, we really had our hat handed to us, a lot of humility those first few years. Um, which was helpful. How did you work through those first two years? Because that would have been tough. That was super, that was very, well, I think the payments were like $10,000 a month. And we just, we found a way to, you know, how do we manage it, you know, one month at a time? We just took it, you know what, how do we get to the next month? How do we get to the next month? And I think the fact that we're from the area, you know, some of our customers helped us out. We, you know, very loyal customer base. They knew what we were trying to accomplish. Um, and, you know, we were very careful what we did, you know, as far as not buying new equipment, not buying, you know, fixing stuff, fixing whatever we could. So my brother, he actually ran the, the business at the start. I still worked at Farm Credit. There's no way I could afford to quit. Um, and then, so that went on until 2008. And then in 2008, my brother kind of said, you know what, I think this business has grown to the point 
it's a bit more that I want to run. Like my brother's, he's more of an operations kind of guy, less of a sales kind of person. And so that's when we switched over and I, and I took over running the business in 2008. And what we made a decision in 2008, so we had, you know, kind of those lean years, you know, we had built ourselves up, you know, kind of climbed out of that hole. And at 2008, we were at a bit of a, um, kind of a tipping point where we said, you know what, we either do this seriously, like, like make a serious effort at this, or we sell it, like one or the other, right? We, it's kind of like, what are we going to do? It wasn't that we weren't making any money, but we were, it was just kind of not coasting, but just, you know, moving along. And so we made this, this I made the decision, I guess, back in 2008, I think, I, said, I think we need to hire like a, a proper salesperson to be, you know, and, and let's see where this goes. And so that's where, you know, so since 2008, I think our business has at least doubled, if not tripled. Uh, so, you know, we, we've tried to maintain, you know, you know, growth over that time, you know, by, you know, I guess careful staffing and hiring the right people and, um, you know, trying to look after our customers and things as best. Yeah, absolutely. So when did the precision piece come in? Because you guys work with a fair, you know, you work with several um, technologies as well. When did that part of the business come into play? I think it first started in 2004 when we first started into like an auto steer system. Okay. And the, the, the inkling or the, the idea of it started, I, I think Bromark at the time or FS at the time, and so did and Cargill and others, they were starting the process of you know, grid sampling and mapping. And, and that was all starting in, in around like, like the, between 1998 and 2000, in the early 2000s, that's really when that, when, you know, those maps first started showing up and, and people had the binders and all these kinds of things. So that got us interested. In our area, like where, where, where Haggerty is, um, one of the jokes about this, uh, this area is that whatever is in the textbook for agronomy doesn't apply to Bob. So <laughs> we have every soil type, it's super variable, it's up and down, and you cannot make any mistakes on our ground. Like if you goof up planting and fertilizing and this kind of stuff, it just ends up, you, can, you, you just can't recover from it. And so doing things properly is important. And I remember so, you know, we were messing with some auto steers and, and this kind of stuff. And when I took over the job from my brother, my brother was very um, hands-on. So he would set every fertilizer spreader. He would make sure that every sprayer was done correctly. Like he just, he was so worried about a mistake that he would make sure, you know, like um, the anhydrous controllers, he would make sure that they were all set properly. And when I started the job, I didn't do any of this kind of stuff. So I'm just like, I don't know how to do this stuff. And I remember a customer came to me and he had started putting down anhydrous ammonia. And he told me, he called me up, he said, Chuck, he said, the anhydrous isn't going on right. And I asked him, I said, okay, I said, well, how many acres have you done? And he said, well, I don't know. I said, oh, okay. I said, well, how many pounds of anhydrous did you put down? Well, he said, I don't know. Oh, okay. How fast are you driving? No, I don't know. So said, how can you possibly know that it's not going on right? Well, he said, well, it just feels like it's not going on right. And what he said 
he kind of said to me exactly what I was feeling at that time. That, you know, we're running these 28% machines and hydrous toolbars and airflows and so much of the stuff was just speed and pressure and by gosh and by golly and we had no maps and I said, you know, this we there's gotta be a better way. And I actually met a guy out of Germany uh, who had his own software that he had developed and, and it was a and I bought his program and it was run on a, on you won't you might not even know what a Palm Pilot is. But it was I, I have heard of them, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it run but it but it was running on a Palm Pilot. And those are the first like hand so those pre you know they were the predecessor to um, cell phones okay yep. and so and me being a techie guy I had always had one so I was one of the first people to have a a, uh, a Palm Pilot and uh, and I liked using them because you had your email and you had all your calculators and all your notes and everything were all with you all the time uh, so when cell phones came around like it was just a natural progression to the smartphone. It was, mm -hmm. this is like, this is what I've always been doing. It's perfect. And so I started with those tools to start measuring fields. And then I started working with people to say, well, how can we bring that into Haggerty? So we started, you know, getting maps of fields. We started, instead of letting somebody else do it for us, we started doing all of this. Uh, I think they call it digital ag now today. But we started collecting all this data. And, and what I started doing was saying, you know what? Whatever data we can have on the farms, I want it. I want to start collecting that. I don't care whether it's topography maps. I don't care whether it's soil tests, uh, weather maps, whatever. We got, a, you know, we got our own weather station here, so we could collect weather data. And we started aggregating this as much as we could over time. And at first, it was super clunky. Um, you know, everybody's machines, nothing talked to each other. Um, you had to, you know, import stuff. And, and uh, I want to, I should really put a shout out to like Ag Leader SMS because whoever built that program felt my pain. <laughs> they made a program that could talk to everything. Yeah. And so, you know, I spent a lot of time, you know, collecting this. And what that morphed into was okay, so now we're collecting this data. How can we get our customers to collect the data? So that morphed into getting our customers using rate controllers, using field computers, using iPads, using climate field view, all this kind of stuff. That's what it led into. And in the course of doing that, one of the things that we discovered was that a lot of, there's lots of salesmen who sell the tech but they don't really understand how it should be used or they don't have time to help the customer to show them how to use it. Mm -hmm. And so we called up, you know, when I was doing some work, um, I just called up Raven and I said, listen, I said, your existing dealers that are here working in my interrogator, all they're doing is they're just calling 1-800 number to Raven and they're asking you, like, how do I fix this? I said, can't I just do this myself? Like, like do, can't I be the dealer? Like, why am I... You know, they're too busy fixing all of the other stuff. Why can't I fix the technology piece? And so they said, yeah, if you want to be a dealer for Raven, go, you know, do that. And so that's really how we started into it. Um, so we started by, uh, you know, basically fixing application controls and fixing, fixing these things. 
And and now we, you know, now we run a pretty good business doing the doing the decision stuff. But what we haven't forgotten is is that our goal is to have our customers applying the right product at the right rate at the right time um, and recording what they're doing so that you know we don't get those questions of well you know where did the fertilizer actually go uh, how much spray did you actually put down we want the customer to, to know all these things and so because we use it all ourselves we don't just sell it we kind of know how it should be used and we have a pretty good sense of how it should be used and uh and how it should work and whether something is working properly it doesn't always go right there's always the odd one that's just a disaster but i mean that's um that's just how it goes and, and that's that's the bulk of our business of our precision business is the whole you know precision application leading to collection of that data and and for the life of me i don't understand like we have the odd customer who has a rate controller of some kind and they, and they don't do anything with their data and i i uh i question that sometimes you know I, i'm just like why <laughs> why yeah. don't you want to do anything yeah and i think probably you've probably cultivated um a bit of a customer base that maybe uses their data more so than what you see mm -hmm. in other parts of the province because i definitely have seen what you're speaking to where you know folks have the data but not necessarily um, doing anything with it just yet so how has that how has that part of your business like incorporating the raven dealership and having more communication with your growers regarding technology and getting those as applied maps back how has that helped the rest of your agronomy and inputs business so what it, what it's done is at the end of the day the agronomy input business has turned into a commodity business you know it's come down to a you know a margin per ton or a dollar per jug or whatever that is and all the retailers have good staff like i don't it doesn't matter whether it's silvite or, or us or the co-op or um the agronomy company like everybody has good employees and so you have to remember that, that you can't sit there and say, well, I'm better or smarter than the person down the road. That's because it's not true. Um, you know, nobody hires, they're all good staff. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to find a way to, um, I think the term is to, is to like to build a fence around some of our customers. You know, to, to you know, how do you how do you tie in some other services into there so that it's more than just the price of the product? Yeah. Um, and so by, you know, by showing by helping our customers with their data, with their maps, with their precision ag business, with their technology, by by helping them utilize that technology and show them, you know, how they can better their farming operations using the stuff that they're already doing. That's the cool part about Precision Ag is that you're already driving across the field. So it's not like it's another task. It's, it's, you're just enhancing what you're already doing. That helps us to, to expand that relationship, build that relationship with our customer base and, uh, and grow our, grow our agronomy business. Um, and it's, you know, to, to, to the degree that we, when we're doing precision ag work, 
we actually have a kind of a line drawn as far as our agronomy, we, as far as we want our agronomy business to go. You know, we actually you know, have a conscious decision that we don't want to go beyond a certain territory because we want to be able to service that territory too. So. Right. Yeah. No, and what a cool relationship that ends up being with the growers that you're working with when you can really work with everything full yeah. circle, you know. So that's got to be pretty cool, especially to grow over the last, you know, 20 years or so, like you said. Oh, yeah, and it's, and it's a, uh, and, you know, and to show somebody that, you know, to show somebody that you know, just because you had a 200 bushel corn crop last year doesn't mean that that couldn't be 225. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's, and that's, that's kind of the cool part that we're at right now is that, you know, we, we are, we're getting into some fun yields, especially, you know, like this year where the, where the yes. growing conditions here have been so good. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, and you're right. I mean, I think um, especially the area that I'm in now as well, I do see some of that where, you know, typically we're on nice ground and we get some good growing conditions, right? And we usually make out okay as far as yields. And so it is pretty easy to just, you know, accept um, what you read on the combine yield monitor, but you know, if you can get another 20, 30 bushel an acre, right? It makes you more competitive too. So well, That's I, kind of fun. one of my one of my new sale one of my new salespeople, when I was talking to them about their customer base, and that's what I was talking about. I said, you know, you know, two hundred bushel corn is no longer the pie in the sky number anymore. Now it's two fifty. You know, and and it's, you know, not everybody around Haggerty is going to get that. Like, not all of our ground is is good enough for that, but some of it is. And mm-hmm. so, and it's, it's, it's a fun, it's a fun thing, especially when, when they can take the tools that we have and print out the maps and show the customer, you know, where, where that could be done. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's awesome. So where is the technology piece of your business headed from here? I saw all kinds of neat stuff on the Twitter machine this spring where you guys were trying out one of the dot fertilizer spreaders. So maybe talk us through that one, um, how you got involved with getting to work with that in the province and what your experience was. So as I said before, I'm kind of a techie person. I've always been the first, one of the first. I don't want to say I'm the first, but I've always been one of the first. And I think from the day that we got our, had our first auto steer system, my brother and I have talked about, you know, why are we in this gap? And why do we need to be in here? Um, and so the automation, like, like robotics, is, the, is like a, a logical next step. So one of the challenges that we see in ag especially on the property and in, in ag in general. And actually, I think it's in any business. I shouldn't just paint ag with a brush. We've seen it in the automotive industry. We've seen it in other businesses. We've seen it in uh, the livestock industry, like especially the dairies and dairy and poultry. You know, automating some of those repetitive tasks is, uh, is what needs to happen. So there's a couple of things happening in agriculture, like in, in crop production, that really point towards automation of some to some degree. One of them is there's a there's a significant push towards organic production and growing of other crops other than corn and soybeans. We have been spoiled a little bit in this area that you know we have three ethanol plants close by that take lots of corn. And so this area has been corn, 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 corn. 
and that's been wonderful. But that market is only so big, um, like it can only it can only grow so much. Excuse me. You know, vehicles get more efficient. Uh, we have alternative fuels, all this kind of stuff. So I don't like I don't foresee that market growing. So in order to maintain the revenue stream, what else are we going to grow? And around here, for around here, for example, it's really hard to grow specialty crops. It's hard to grow tomatoes. It's hard to grow edible soybeans and all this kind of stuff because of the weed pressure. Um, most people can't even grow IP soybeans because they can't control the weeds on our scene. And so in order to try to grow something else, well, Physically, you can't get it done. Like, you know, that there isn't a labor force, you can't cultivate that much, and whatever. And this is where automation of some of the processes will come in. And so, you know, I've been thinking about it. I've, I've been watching, you know, robots, and there's been people experimenting with farm robots for probably 10 years or more um, in, out in the fields. And not really, I never really saw anything that, you know, kind of jumped, you know, first to mind. And I saw the dot platform at the Precision Ag Conference a few years ago when uh, when the inventor of it, he came and he spoke at the Precision Ag Conference. And I don't even know why I sat in on that platform. Like I, you know, sometimes I sat in on the, on the lecture series and sometimes I didn't, but I happened to go in for that one. And the whole time I went, that is exactly what I would build. If I was going to build something, maybe I wouldn't build it so big, like I did tell him that it looks like it was built in Saskatchewan. It's big, uh, <laughs> but uh, but that was pretty much the concept where you would have one unit that would that could plant and could spray and could spread fertilizer and could do different tasks. And so not only did they have it sitting there, they had one built and was running. And I thought, whoa, like this is this is pretty this is pretty cool. Um, so I spent the next couple of years just following what they were doing, you know, like, you know, staying in contact, you know, watching the videos, seeing what they were up to. Um, and then I went to their farm, their research farm last October. Uh, we, our soybean harvest was delayed here. So I, oh, it sounds so foreign. I need to hop on a plane and fly somewhere. But I hopped on a plane. It does, honestly. <laughs> I hopped on a plane and flew to flew to Regina, to Saskatchewan, and I went out to and I spent a day and a half with them touring around. And what was really cool about doing that is that they had two of the dot units on their on their research farm, and they were dirty. They were dirty. They were filling them with fertilizer. They were running. And I thought, and then I got to kind of see this is what this would look like. And I thought, you know, this, there's something to this. I think this could work. Um, then Raven bought the dot company later on that year, um, which that alleviated some of my concerns about getting involved. Because one of the concerns you have is you is when there is when there are let's say there's 15 companies trying to build a technology, which one do you pick? You know, do you, exactly. You know, do you pick the iPhone or do you pick the Windows phone? Right? And and I had picked the Windows phone, of course, and so now I had to switch, but um, and so anyways, the, you know, do you, you know, what technology do you pick? And so, you know, it's, it's very reluctant. None of this stuff is cheap. And so once Raven made the investment, I thought, well, there's some weight behind this company now. Like it's not going yeah. to go, you know, not going to go anywhere. 
And so I, uh, so I guess I kept up my negotiations with them. They really didn't want to send one to Ontario. They were very concerned about service and support and what if it broke down. And uh, what they really didn't want is they didn't want the media taking pictures of a document flipped on its side in a ditch somewhere or, or on fire or something like that. And I made lots of assurances that, that, you know, I was, you know, we were careful. And then I think the Raven people spoke very highly of us. They knew that we were very supportive. They also knew that we were very mechanically inclined, you know, so that, you know, if we had a hydraulic leak, we weren't going to just, it wasn't just going to sit shut down. Uh, and so, so they relented. And uh, so we, so we actually, we actually purchased the document. Um, so we bought it and we went with the fertilizer spreader just because it's technology that I knew, um, you know, it's something that I knew it's fairly universal. Um, and so the document came two weeks late because of COVID, it just couldn't get here on time. Uh, but we did manage, you know, I, I had kind of, hope to get a thousand acres through the dot unit in the springtime, but we actually put 1400 acres through it. So, Very cool. Um, what was involved in it is we had to map the fields first. So luckily the, the tool that we had to map the field with arrived ahead of time. So we were able to, to go ahead and map some fields first, map out the boundaries and see, you know, obstacles and this kind of stuff. When the dot unit arrived, I think like the very next day, I think it showed up at three or four in the afternoon and the very next day it was in the field running. Uh, wow. So we didn't waste any time. Um, and all in all, I would say it went better than I expected. I think the, what was interesting is I expected that the mechanical side of the dot unit was going to work very, very well. And I expected this to have lots of computer glitches because there's lots of computer work going on on this thing. People. For sure. It was just the opposite. Actually, the, the technology and the computer side actually worked pretty good, um, better than I expected. And they have they had some mechanical issues that they had to had to work on. You know, some oil leaks and some oil cooler problems and, and this kind of stuff. Stuff right. that I, I don't think they expected it either. I, I also think that I worked it a little harder than what they... <laughs> <laughs> What they sometimes I think the mechanical fixes are probably easier than yeah. the software fixes exactly. too. <laughs> right, and, and none of the mechanical stuff is something that can't be rectified or, or hasn't been rectified. Right. It was all just you know, it's all it's it's kind of like being you know, when you're the first one when you're the prototype, you're going to have these issues. And so, anyways, we uh, we very quickly uh, you know, kind of key over the process, like how we're going to load the machine on the trailer, how we're going to get into the field. You know what's going to happen when it gets there. Um, those those types of things. You know we sorted that out fairly quickly. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it went it went pretty good. Um, there are some things that I think, as farmers, we need to do a better job with some of our farms. Um, the second that we move to having robots in a field the the tile washouts and the little drainage problems that we've ignored for the last 10 years there's no excuse for that right. you know why is there a tree in the middle of the field uh, you know the tree branches that are overhanging on the side of the field 
let's let's fix those fix those things. You know, entrances into the fields and laneways and and all these types of things that it's just so easy when you're driving a machine just to turn the wheel and then just kind of you know, move yourself around it. Um, but once you have a robot, you can't you don't have that flexibility anymore. And you start and you actually lose some of the speed advantages that the robot will give you because of these very easily rectified issues. Right, right. So probably a better fit to start, you know, on your more rectangular fields, few objects. <laughs> that's what uh, that's what the dot people had hoped we were going to do. And I didn't send them. Mm -hmm. I sent them to triangles. I sent them to fields with it. So around here, we don't have a lot of nice, pretty square rectangles. We have very few. And you know what? The the dot was able to plant itself around. I'd say 95% of that very, very well. Uh, yeah. It was, you know, they have some work to do on their software, but in uh, their, you know, that, that process is ongoing. But uh, yeah, it, it actually handled itself better than what they expected, honestly. You know, some of the fields that I showed them that have seven hydro poles running through the field, they're just like, oh no, what are we going to do here? And you know, it, yeah. it made itself, did it little, it, it moved itself around those things, no problem at all. That's neat. Mm -hmm. So when you get to the field then, like I imagine you're going to do some summer and fall work with this. Yep. So just kind of run us through. So, I mean, obviously, you know, you've got a float to get it to the field. And then once you're there, you've got your tender filling it. Um, but is it kind of a scenario where you would want to make sure that you've got somebody just kind of observing it? Or are you just keeping an eye on it from your phone? Or what does that look like? So what we what we do for so for right now someone stays in the field with it observing it. my my long-term vision and, and and dot agrees with like like raven agrees with this is at some point they will allow this machine to be unattended in the field right. so you know that that will happen over time but for right now what, what i was what i've done is you know we i send it the the tech and actually, I didn't run most of it. I, I Chris that works for me, he actually did most of the spreading. So, you know, we would take it to the field and he would, you know, set up the job, you know, set the mission plan, load it with fertilizer and make sure everything worked okay. Um, so I think going forward, that's where we're at. It's just, you know, you're just kind of streamlining. And I think our acres per hour, I think by the time when we started and we finished, we doubled our we doubled our acres per hour from start to finish. Yeah. Awesome. Oh, that's neat. And it's, it's a learning curve, yeah. right? Like, I mean, any even any new piece of equipment, you know, software or not, right? It's always a learning um, curve when you get something new to work oh, with. Yeah. So oh, yeah. that's very exciting. So looking at, at fall plans then, do you have a goal in mind for what you're going to try and cover for acres with the DOT? There's about... Yeah, there's about, well, we're going to try and do about 400 acres after, four or 500 acres after wheat with it. Yep. And then in the fall, uh, my plan is, is to run at least three to 4,000 acres through it this fall. Awesome. You know, about half of our custom spreading acres, I'm hoping it will be run with the dot. Yeah, awesome. That's, that's neat. Yeah. And um, so do you think this is something that could be, like, is it a better fit in your mind for a retailer or is this something that you see being commonplace for some of the larger growers in the province where where the where the automated technology actually shines i would argue is a more of a medium-sized producer okay 
the larger producers, like the like the big producers, it's really hard to compete with a sprayer that has a that can run 40 miles an hour up and down the road right. and has 120 foot boom. It's hard to compete against that. Right. It's also very hard to compete against you know somebody who has two 50 foot corn planters, for example. Like it's just they just get so much done. Yep. The people who struggle the most that I've seen in, in, in my travels is the farmer who has 700 acres or 1,200 acres or 1,500 acres and is trying to do that by themselves. Right. They're not big enough to have a full-time employee, but they but it's too much work for their family. You know, they don't have the good good quality of life. And so this is where having something like a dot in it, and let, let's let's picture the corn planter. So the fertilizer spreader, like that's all well and good, and that's fine. Let's let's picture that a dot unit with a corn planter sitting on. And so the farmer goes out, and the farmer says, "Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna head to the field. I'm gonna bring my eight-row corn planter that I already have, and I'm going to bring dot with another eight-row corn planter on it. And the two of us are gonna go to the field together. And the the dot unit." So the farmer will start by planting, let's say the farmer plants the headland, the farmer does, let's say the wet spot or whatever. And then the farmer says to the dot, I want you to finish everything else. So now the farmer goes home for supper while the dot plants all night long. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then the farmer comes back in the morning, the field is planted, as an example. Yep. Or let's say it's middle of the day, the dot is infilling the field, the farmer now moves to the next field starts the next field. The farmer can also move all of their supplies, move the seed truck, move the fertilizer wagon. They can do all this stuff while the dot is finishing the field. So the dot almost becomes that third hand yep. that, uh, that people will need. That you only need seasonally. <laughs> right. And another another good example would be a dot unit towing a drag line. Okay. You know, you know, so there's a, there's a job that you know you're you're driving two miles an hour up and down the field. Who is actually watching the, the the lines and the leaks and the flow rates and all this kind of stuff? Well, now if you if you, if you let the dot unit run up and down the field two miles an hour, now the farmer can go and you know make sure the pit is agitated, make sure that you know or if they're hauling it to the to the mobile tank or whatever, you free up a person. So, you know, again, for people who can't have that full-time employee or, or a temporary employee, that's that's really where I see the dot in the Yeah, no, that's a good good perspective on it for sure. And you see a lot of those folks, absolutely, that um, either struggle to get some help or have to rely heavily on, say, their retailer for custom ap- application of, you know, different different products. So that's, um, yeah, that's kind of neat. So what's... Yeah. Um, What's next as far as technology for you? Is there anything else that you kind of have your eye on that you're looking to try? So we, so we have, we have commissioned a small robot okay. called Romeo. And uh, so it's, so R-O-A-M-I-O is what it's called. So Rome in I-O. And anyways, and what it is for, it's going to do our soil sampling for us. Okay. So the Romeo unit is actually going to run the soil optic sensor that we have so that we can get, we can basically, we're going to try, we want to try to double our acres per day, what we want to do. And so this roll mill unit, it's big enough to run the soil optic sensor. 
it can drag our EM sled for doing uh, EM scanning if we want to do that. It can also, it all, we have also mounted a spreader on it so we can spread fertilizer if we need to. Uh, I want to put a little sprayer on it. So we're starting to see some water hemp down by us. Yep. So, uh, so we need to start doing a better job going around the outsides of our fields and cleaning up the outsides of our fields. Yep. The job that never gets done. Yep. So my vision would be like for, for an example like the Romeo unit, I can now deploy it along the outside of the field and I can put a glorified backpack sprayer, let's say a 200 gallon tank mm -hmm. on this little robot. Mm -hmm. And I can tell it to go, just go around the field once. Because that's a job that, A, it's not much fun for anyone to do. No. Two, it's not fair to send an employee in amongst 10 foot tall corn and tree, trees on one side and 10 foot corn on the other side and say, here, go and spray some chemicals in there. And I'll no, help you I was, was <laughs> going to say, Romeo sounds like the ultimate summer student. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's, and I think the other thing that I've seen in terms of whether you're doing these kinds of tasks, like, for example, we, we spread some red clover with Romeo this, this spring. There's better, there are better tasks for my, for my summer students to be doing rather than sitting on a four-wheeler going up and down the field. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, it's not, about, it's not about not having that person. That person can be doing something else. Yep. Um, and yep. that, this is and let the robot do these other robots. So that's, well, that's our next project. So Romeo is going to arrive in maybe two weeks, I think, is when it gets here. Awesome. So that's going to be fun to play with. Um, so we're doing that. Uh, we, we've done some work with drones like, like that can spread fertilizer like from the air. Okay. Um, there's just so many rules and regulations on that just yet. And so I haven't given yeah. up on so there, there's some work I want to do on the on the aerial drones. Uh, I'd love to have a, a sprayer drone. Like uh, in, in my ideal world, I would have a fleet of four drones that could spray. That would just be uh, I think that would just be so perfect for for so many times, especially for fungicides and this kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, I think that would be nice. And I guess we'll kind of see where it goes from there. Those are my next couple projects. Well, that's uh, that's awesome. It's kind of neat to watch and be interesting to watch over the next few years mm -hmm. and see how you make out, you know, with the dot and with the Romeo and whatever else comes your way. Yep. But it definitely seems like, you know, you're certainly an early adopter of these technologies and not afraid to, you know, to do your homework, but to dive in and, and get started on it, right? So I guess a question for you. For folks that are maybe just getting started in their careers, um, you know, maybe some have gone to school, maybe some haven't, what advice would you have for somebody that's maybe looking to get into farming or looking to get into their own business in general? Well, let me think about how to answer that one. One of the first things I would tell people is that, you know, play the long game, okay? Like, if you want to be successful at something, you need to play the long game. Like it's, it's, you know, set yourself a goal of what you want to accomplish and stick to it for a while. I think I, I you know, nothing is more discouraging than watching people jump from one um, kind of adventure to the other. And it might be a lot of fun for a while while they're at it, but eventually those people, you know, you, you hate to see someone do a slow burn and, and 
you kind of end up going nowhere. So if there's something that you right. really like to do that you're passionate about doing, you know, stick with it. And you might start small. Like it's like it's okay. Like nobody says that if you're going to start farming, that you have to start with a hundred cows to go, or two hundred cows. You know, no one says that if you're going to start farming, you need a thousand acres. Farm five acres, you're still farming. You know, so if that's what you want to do, you need to find a way. You know, resource-wise, how do I start this and then stick to it? And then over time, opportunities. You know, you, you, if you get good at what you're doing opportunities will present themselves. So and if growth is in your future, then then your your business will grow. Um, so I, I think that whole or that that concept of, of just not giving up is something. Um, the other thing other advice I would give is and this is this might be old advice is don't ever stop learning. So you're you're never I guess too old to to learn something new or try something new. And I read a book one time, and it's called The Good is the Enemy of the Great. And I don't remember anything about that book other than that sentence. Uh, <laughs> and but but really it's very easy to get comfortable in what you're good at and what you're doing and 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 forgetting to that there's more out there. And I try to tell my, I'm trying to instill this in my in my in my daughters, that the world is such a big place. There's so much going on in the world. There's so much that you can do, and it's really easy to get sucked into your own little, your own little world, uh, that you forget that there's mm -hmm. there's there's whole other industries and businesses that that we never even knew existed. You know because we close ourselves off a little yeah. bit and, and, and ag is very i find people involved in the ag business are very very prone to to not uh, being not something not open to it but to to not looking beyond what's in ag it's not in ag they tend to you know to forget that oh you know someone else is already doing this right or, or there's, there's a whole other world out there and, more similarities than we think sometimes. Yeah, I remember when I got started programming some of my microcontrollers, I, uh, you know, I looked it up online and I found out that, that not only is there a whole bunch of people doing this already, there was like 600,000 members on one user form, right? And I never even heard of it. Right? And so, probably courses on how to do it. Yeah, it's, yeah. So here I am thinking I'm a techie person, and there's this whole, there, 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 there's this whole other universe of people. Yeah. Up, you know, and, and and anyways, it's so I try to, I would recommend that to people is don't you know, be open to, be open to to reading things. Uh, you know, I guess be well, you know, I guess being well read and 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 and, and not like getting outside of your own circle a little bit. You know, um, so that so that you don't get you see what's out there, and I think that can help you in business as well. Yeah. When you're you're looking for an opportunity, you can look at well, how did I don't know, how did Walmart do it? How did Tesla do it? How did you know those are you know how did they do it? You know you know and does that apply to me? You know especially as um, you know, especially as you know, things are going to change with this whole COVID situation. You know, when when 
you know, as the, you know, as we're into phase three and things are opening up, businesses are opening up, I don't, things aren't going to be the same. You know, they're going to, what they're going to look like, I don't know, but they're not going to be the same and we need to be open to that. Yeah. No, that's such a good message. So what are your thoughts on failure? I didn't know I was going to ask you this, but I'm, I'm intrigued because, because you've definitely taken some risks in your career. You went from a pretty cozy job at FCC to starting up, you know, not only an elevator, taking on more land, also an agronomy business, and it kind of was crap the first couple of years. And so, um, and, and but, but you've taken more risks, you know, throughout um, your years, you know, starting into technology and whatnot as well. So what are your thoughts on failure or does that even cross your mind? Are you just driven towards that goal or towards progress? I think, I think to answer that question, I would go back to even your previous one, advice to a student. You shouldn't be afraid of failure. Like you shouldn't be afraid to have your hat handed to you um, because it's going to happen. There's going to be things that don't go the way that you want. And alongside of that, you need to be willing to take a risk. Um, and that risk can take many forms. That could be quitting, quitting my pretty good job that I had and going to one that I knew nothing about. Uh, it could be, you know, putting a, putting up a, a grain bin in the middle of nowhere, like what we did. It could be buying a dog unit. Those, those are risks that, that, that you take. I think the, the counterpoint to that that I would make, though, is that they need to be calculated risks. So when you're, when you're taking risks and you're, and you're risking failure, when you're making a decision to do something, it has to be towards the goal that you're working towards. So you know, if you're working towards a target in your life of something that you want to be doing, it's okay if you fail along the way because um, you know, as you're you know, as you're you're moving on that trajectory upwards, you know, so yes, you get down for a while, but you're still moving towards that target. So it's, so you can accept the failure better so if you have a you know a crop failure or poor crops or you buy a machine that just doesn't work or or some you know something that that happens to you um because you're still on progress to your end goal you don't take it to heart quite as much and so you can handle that that failure now that being said you should not just do stuff willy-nilly either like i mean this like, I, I don't want to make it sound like we just snapped our fingers and said, yeah, we're going to do this. And you know, <laughs> we, uh, one of the, one of the things that we did to, to kind of protect ourselves, my brother is actually quite good at, at um, kind of seeing through things. You know, he, he's quite good at, at having um, like that counterpoint, not a negative counterpoint, but to say, is this real? Like, is this, you know, are we seeing the whole picture? And, and I, and I actually rely on him quite a bit to, you know, when we're talking through, through things and, you know, what are we going to build or what are we going to purchase or how are we going to do this for him to, you know, he's very good at standing back and seeing the forest kind of thing and saying, you know, are we missing something here? And so having, when you're going to take these risks, having a person like that is, is very, 
you know, so I talked about him when I talked about uh, Jim Campbell, the manager of Agris, who is kind of a visionary person who kind of seems to know what's going to happen. Like they're, they're, you, you run across those odd people in your life that, uh, that, and, uh, and, and where they come from, I don't know, but um, that, that help in that process of, you know, doing that. And then uh, on the, on, then if you do fail, like if something happens and, you know, you, you fall on your back or whatever, you know, you don't, you, you can pick up a lot faster, you know, so you pick right. up a lot faster. Right. Uh, that's a good message. I hope people go back and listen to that again because uh, it's, it's tough. And, and I think you had so many good points there just about, you know, looking beyond just our industry to see what's being done, um, you know, kind of putting the work in, having the long-term goal, and especially, you know, for our generation too, not just looking for that kind of short-term satisfaction. I think that that's all such such good messages. Well, and I, and I first picked up on that, actually, when I was at Farm Credit. When I worked at Farm Credit, the majority of employees at Farm Credit were people from farms. And so didn't matter what job they were in, they all had a very strong ag connection, which is, which is great and wonderful. But I used to try to remind mm -hmm. them that at the end of the day, Farm Credit is just a bank. And so surely, you know, surely somebody within the banking industry had done this before. And they used to always say that you'd be, when I worked there, you'd be shocked at how much of that company was run on, a, on an Excel spreadsheet because they didn't know how to do it any other way. And so that's where I first kind of got awoken to, you know, I think there's, there's got to be somebody else outside of ag that's already doing this. So I'll give them the credit for letting me have that insight. <laughs> Very good. Uh, no, that's awesome. Last question that I will leave you with, and I like to try and end off with, um, and this doesn't necessarily have to be agronomy related in any way, but just looking at our province as a whole, at the farming community, um, you know, what is maybe one or two areas that you think we could improve, you know, agronomy, crop production, or just general practices on the farm? I think it'd be nicer to, if we could share information better. There is lots of information, there's lots of projects being done, you know, kind of one-on-one. -on -one. And if you happen to know the people who are doing these tests and doing these trials, then you end up getting the, the inside of that. But I think, you know, as open as Canadians are, you know, as open and as friendly as we are, we're also super competitive. And there's all there's lots of protection of information that happens, mm -hmm. you know, especially amongst you know producers and, and stuff like that. So I think that is something that, you know, I kind of wish that we could get over ourselves a little bit and say, you know what, you know what, Chuck, you're what you're doing isn't that, you know, you're not that's top secret, right? You know, maybe we should be sharing this, you know, to, to the betterment of, of everyone. Um, I think if, you know, if, if one person can, can grow consistent 120 bushel wheat, then probably more of us could grow good wheat and we would all make, make more money. Um, I think that is something that, uh, that, I, that I would like to see. And I'm really hoping that some of the data platforms that are, that are coming forward will help with that. I think that is something that, that within ag, I think, um, 
would be useful. The other thing that I would like to see is, especially in our, uh, between the industry and between our government, like, like, like our, our extension people, there's a lot of silos. And so what you'll see is you'll see, you know, Bayer, for example, working on their climate field new platform. Then you'll see Corteva working on their granular platform. You'll see uh, Solio has their own platform. We get, at, at, you know, we're working within the FS system and we're using the advanced platform. So we've got all these GIS tools and they're all separate. And then OMAP, for example, turns around and partners and you know, they've got their own database that they've developed. You know, Niagara College is working on their own, you know, so like everyone is doing their own kind of between the industry and the government, you know, they're all working on their own tool, which none of us can use any of them. Like it, it, all, it ends up, we all, we all end up saying, it's really nice what you're doing over here, Mr. Company or Mrs. Company, but we actually can't use it because you're not going to share the data. So we've got to build our own. Um, there's lots of wasted resources happening. And, and there, there's lots of money being spent on all these tools that only one kind of group can use or is willing to use. And so then none of them have enough momentum. So in, in Ontario, like like the US, the US grows more corn like in one county, I think, in Iowa that we grow. And, and I, I remember when I went on crop tour at Guelph and we toured around and we toured around through Nebraska somewhere or whatever, they told us that there's more milk leaks out of the fittings and milk trucks in the U.S. than our entire market, right? You know, so we're so small here that we can't afford to not share information and we can't afford to not have that momentum or not, or not, not momentum, um, critical mass, right? So like every individual player is so tiny um, that we're, we're, we'll lose ground. Uh, to to the Americans or to whoever, right? Just because we are a small place, we kind of got to stick together a little bit more uh, as a group, and I think that would be something that I would like to see. Yeah, that's such a good point, and I mean, like you say, kind of, I, I like the silo analogy, but having it that way, um, it makes it tough for the producer as well to ever get started mm -hmm. because there's so much confusion as to where to start. And then it's kind of like what you said earlier about the robot piece, you know, like picking a brand to go with, well, who's going to have the most longevity? You almost get to that stalemate and then you just don't do anything yep. because, you know, there's a bit of worry and a bit of fear there about how to get going. Right. Because um, there are so many options and you get kind of pigeonholed once well, you do get going. So. And, and, I talked, and I talked to a company out of the UK who talks? Who talked about a farming model? And in their farming model, that's what they that's what they use is they have a like a consulting group that consults for like five hundred thousand acres or whatever the acres it is. The farmers still have their own farms, and they still have given they have to approve everything. But then this consulting, they can kind of share that information amongst that whole group. So then when they go to deploy something, it makes it cheaper for everybody. It makes it less right. expensive for everybody, you know, because yeah. you're kind of doing the same, you know, you're, you're, you're cookie cuttering the same processes over, you know, it helps everyone. Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, no, that's a, that's a different model for sure. But I mean, obviously one that's working over there for them, but it's, it's been a common theme. It's funny when I ask folks that question, it's been a bit of a common theme, just having more open communication and we're all guilty of it. And there's different reasons for it. I mean, we can all say that we don't have enough time, but competition is, is a big one of it. Like you mentioned, there's, and it's the thing that is a shame is that there are so many good people working within the industry. Mm-hmm. And it is a shame that, um, you know, you don't always feel like you can work with everyone just because of competition and whatnot. But we, we do do ourselves a bit of a disservice in that way. <laughs> well, and, I, and, I, and I, I'm a big believer that I'm a big believer in but there's, there's lots to go around for everybody. You know, mm-hmm. and, and I'm a big believer that if the if there's not enough pie, you make the pie bigger. You know, that that's that's at the end of the day, that we have to believe that. Otherwise it becomes too cutthroat. So Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a that's a good model to have for sure. Well, I uh, I really appreciate this, Chuck, and so much good information. Like I think you're just uh yourself and, and your brother obviously too, just um, really neat individuals that I think we can all kind of learn a lot from. And then I just, I think you've got a really interesting perspective on the industry as well. well thanks very much, it was very enjoyable. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. For more episodes, please subscribe. You can find updates to new episodes on my Twitter at prosperityag0l. 